You're listening to 100 PM, episode 37. You're listening to 100 PM, the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today, I'm talking to Shilpa Mohanty, Manager of Product Integrations at Vibes Media. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Shilpa Mohanty. Hi, I'm Shilpa Mohanty. I'm a product manager. Um, I work at Vice Media here in Chicago. Welcome to the show, Shilpa. Thank you. You've got a, a significant amount of product management experience, but you also have experience as a marketer, experience as a developer, experience as a business consultant. You're you're a true triple threat in, in the industry. And I'm curious if you can share with me and our, our audience how did you find your way into product management specifically? Sure. Um, so I'm from India, and I did my undergrad in computer science engineering and graduated in 2011. But while I was doing my undergrad, I was involved with a startup um, in my university, and it was called Vigyan.com, which meant knowledge in English. And we were a group of seven, eight folks. Um, two of my seniors started the um, company, and we were launching this website e-commerce platform for students. Um, and I was involved in the development part of it because, you know, I was a computer science engineering student. Uh, but I was always interested in how they're going and meeting students, and they used to do a lot of promotions at different tech fests and other events. And I was always fascinated by going and talking to people and getting their feedback about how they like our platform and all of that. So um, I was always really interested in the business side of things, but then I graduated. Um, I my first job out of college was Infosys Limited, uh, when I worked with uh, the sustainability unit within our organization, and we were a team of probably around 50 to 100 folks. Um, there were few people here in the United States uh, who were client-facing because we were working on a lot, with a lot of clients, and then our team back in India was involved with the product development process about creating the sustainability and compliance reporting solution that was our main, our core product. Um, and I was involved in all facets of the product development process. Uh, I was involved in the development, uh, moved to the data side of things, um, then moved to the quality assurance, and then I was also involved in the business team, writing requirements and working in the agile uh, way of uh, you know, product development and all of that. But I was always very curious to understand why are we developing the product and what is exactly that we're trying to do? How is it solving a pain point? Uh, and I was very curious about the business metrics and how the business is functioning, how the client is willing to get our product. And uh, marketing was a very um, was a very seamless transition for me because I always wanted because I was involved in client demos and I wanted to see how you know we are pitching our product and how well we are doing and how well we are tracking um, the metrics with with respect to marketing and sales. Um, and that's when I decided to do a transition from the world of technology to social media and digital marketing. Um, I came to the United States um, and decided to join a nonprofit. Um, so I joined Safety Water, which was uh, for the cause of you know providing clean water and against fracking and all of other things. And I did social media marketing for them, which was again very very technology oriented. I mean, 
was not something which was pure marketing or print or traditional marketing. It was very, very, you know, um, technology and uh, I would say data focused. So I did that for a while and then decided to go for my business education for my MBA. And that's how, you know, all those business consulting things and all, everything came back into my life. But I felt that I was much, much more inclined towards building products um, and understanding the entire, you know, start to end life cycle of how you launch a product, how you come up with the idea, ideation, all of that. And that's how the different backgrounds kind of gelled into what I was doing then. But my... My first passion was to build products, so that's how you know it all came together. And I realized that product management would be a role where I would be able to utilize all my interests, passions, and you know just deal with a lot of things in the same place. Right. So. Right. Now, it, just to go back in time for a moment to Infosys. So you described it that you started there as a developer, sort of out of school, and then you quickly moved kind of across departments. You went to data, you went to quality assurance, and ultimately into sort of the business analyst side. I'm curious, were you driving those transitions? Was it a function of you were getting bored as a developer, so you wanted to try something else, or your management was moving you along through those processes? I think it was a combination of both. So what I usually do is every time I'm working on something, I not only work on that, I also think about the other things and try to take up additional responsibilities. So when I was a developer, I would be interested in how the SQL side is working, like how are they writing queries and what exactly they're doing, what are the models they're building with SSRS, SSIS, like those data models and everything. So I would do my normal day-to-day -day job and then I would just go and sit down with them, do some pair work and learn what they're doing. And that somehow caught the eye of my uh, my boss or the senior um, director then. And he was always very encouraging and supporting what exactly I wanted to do with my career. So I told him that I wanted I was interested in the data side of things. He moved me there. After a while, I was like, I want to do testing of the product. I want to see, I want to understand the entire you know, the different test cases and different ways our product can work and think about the different edge cases and scenarios and all of that. And I moved to the quality assurance. And then finally, it was like, I want to understand the business side of things. I want to be in client demos. And he always supported that. So it was a combination of both. And I was lucky to have um, him guide me throughout the way. The other thing that I think is interesting about all of the different experiences, professional experiences that you've had is the scale of the company has varied so significantly. I mean, I think Infosys is somewhere around 100,000 people sort of globally. Like that's a really huge organization. Uh, Vibes, where you are today, how many people working at Vibes? 155. 155. Very different kind of scale. And, and you mentioned a few startups along the way. So I think there were even some smaller organizations and, uh, and then a few more, probably somewhere between where Vibes is and, and where Infosys was. Is there for you an ideal scale of a company where, where you feel that you thrive the most? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I've worked with bigger enterprises, worked work with clients who are like really big, worked with smaller clients, nonprofits, startups, and all of that. I always feel I'm comfortable in a position where I can come and contribute towards the processes and create an environment where I'm comfortable working. Uh, for example, at Infosys, even though it was a very big company and we were a big team, there was a lot of chaos and ambiguity with what exactly we were delivering. And even though there were processes, probably they were not 
rightly suited for me or I wasn't very comfortable working in those environments. Again, in startups, you have no processes at all. You're actually creating them. So again, it's very difficult to create a culture, to create the processes that would be, uh, that people would actually adapt to. And then there are companies like Vibes where there are processes already, but you know, we're scaling. We're actually rapidly growing. So there is a lot of scope of improvement and introduction of new processes. And I myself feel comfortable in those kind of roles where I can come and bring more change management and use my background to make certain changes that can actually create more uh, efficiency for the company and can, can actually come up with better efficient processes. So I would say a middle level company would be, or maybe a company where there is a, some, there's some set, set processes, but then things that I can come and change and easily cater it to the way I want or the way it would be best suitable for innovation and other stuff to grow. Yeah, well, I, I love process as well. So I want to stay here and, and talk about process with you. I think the first thing that's coming to my mind hearing you speak is acknowledging that process and the way process has to evolve changes not only at, at the scale of the company in terms of number of employees, but also where the company is kind of in the product life cycle. So you talk about Vibes being sort of a fast growing company. In a lot of ways, that's kind of like we're, we're quickly outgrowing our own processes, maybe even processes that two months ago or six months ago served us quite well. Talk to us as a starting point about when does a, a, a new company, in your opinion, have to start thinking about process? And are there a, a handful of processes that you feel are essential to have in place in whatever form, whether you're three or five people or, or 50 people? I think uh, till the organization reaches uh, a maximum amount of like 50 to 60 people, that's when I personally feel there is a need of introducing processes. Before that, it's mainly a startup, it's a new organization where everybody mostly is working together in teams and they're not, they're not set teams uh, for each of the function of the company. Like, maybe the same guys doing product, the same guys doing marketing, um, and there's no requirement of having set processes. But a few things that would help the team to work faster could be really helpful in a new startup kind of an organization. But I guess once you cross the threshold of 50 to 60 people, you start having different teams, you start dividing up responsibilities and making it more precise and specific to what that team is supposed to deliver. I guess introducing a few processes here and there that can reduce the friction in how the teams interact and work together could be the starting point. Um, and I've seen, I, I think I really appreciate the fact that the companies that actually rapidly grow or you know, they rapidly innovate have smaller team structures and they have like processes that are very, very tightly coupled yet highly predictable. You know that this is how the team is going to function, the dependencies are reduced, the waste is reduced and all of that. So I guess uh, as you start growing uh, and scaling up, you need processes to match up to everybody's comfort levels and everybody to feel safe uh, and feel more productive to perform. So I guess it depends uh, on the companies, but I guess, yeah, I mean, the more flexible you are at creating processes, the much, I mean, it's much more better for the organization. 
Have you worked in, in on the development side in particular? Have most of the environments that you've worked in been agile environments or you have some experience in kind of waterfall software delivery as well? Um, in my initial uh, years of experience, yes, I worked with Infosys and they were waterfall and then they moved to agile later on. So I remember writing long requirement specification documents and then just writing them for about two or three months with so many bullet points that I lose track of what I've written, you know, a few weeks back. And then we moved to Agile. And I think since then I've always been in Agile environments mm -hmm. and I think I've much more enjoyed working in an Agile environment rather than the waterfall. I think one of the things about Agile, well, they say, you know, the right Agile is the one that works for you. And certainly in my experience going into organizations who are becoming Agile or doing some form of Agile, there's still a lot of challenges associated with it. It's, you know, especially if you look at Scrum as an example, it's a well-documented, structured process. These are the meetings. This is how it works. This is when we go away and do things. This is when we come back and review the things that we did. And so given that you're so passionate about process, I'm curious about your opinion on why it's difficult to be agile, even though I think most organizations would agree that it's philosophically correct. And why do companies struggle to become agile or companies who are agile uh, drift back toward waterfall over time? Yeah, I think all the teams, all the organizations that I've worked mostly have been agile. Um, and the, I think process, when we talk about process, we talk about people, right? And Agile, when it has its well-documented philosophy and the steps and, you know, the different uh, ceremonies that you perform for an Agile team doesn't go well with everybody in your organization at the same point of time. There are people who might enjoy the structured way of doing things. There are people who are just there to deliver and do not want to be restricted or bounded by any such ceremonies, or any such meetings, or any such well-documentation stuff and, you know, the set structure of processes. And I think the biggest challenge is how do you align the entire organization or your, your team to, uh, you know, just to follow those agile principles or follow the set things. And that, that becomes kind of a big challenge when you're working with bigger teams and you're, you're delivering bigger projects which are dependent on multiple teams at the same time. So I guess what's required is experimentation. Agile is pretty flexible and you know you can just make it you can, you can make it more suited to how you deliver, how your organization delivers work and who are the customers you're catering to finally. So uh, for example at Vibes we have about six to seven teams and we have pretty like we have pretty small teams um, and we do a lot of experimentation. So we have teams that work on Kanban. We have teams that work on pure Scrum. And then within each team, we we actually differ on how we do the retrospectives, how we do the planning. Um, planning is 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 in I mean it's universal across the teams, but the way we execute the different agile principles is very different. And then we do retrospectives on a regular basis. We have something called as team health check activities that we do with the teams regularly just to get their feedback 
in, in response to whether they think the stuff that we're trying to do with the process is working or not. And we actually take the feedback a lot more, a um, lot into consideration and a lot seriously because that counts, right? You're ultimately working with people. And if they feel and if everybody unanimously feels the process is working for them, then fine, we can continue with that process for you know, some time. But if it doesn't, then there's always room for experimentation and just trying out new things and seeing how that Works out. Tell us a little bit about what is Vibes for the folks listening in who maybe haven't heard about the company. So we are a mobile marketing technology company. So what we do is we help uh, marketers unlock new revenue by arming them with the technology and expertise needed to succeed in the world of mobile marketing. Uh, we work with a lot of retailer brands, a lot of other brands to manage all of their mobile marketing campaigns, such as text messaging, mobile wallet, push messaging, all in one single interface. So we have a mobile marketing automation and technology SaaS platform that our clients use to uh, talk to their customers, so essentially the end customers. Right. And what is your specific role there at Vibes? What are the, the products that you're managing in particular? So as I mentioned, we have this platform, which is called Vibes Engagement Platform, um, and I manage the integrations. So I manage the public APIs, I manage the mobile database, I manage the incentivator engine that um, gives out incentive codes and all of that. So I manage the back end of the platform. It, let's talk about the API for a moment, because when you have a public API, your customer are typically the developers of other organizations, possibly the developers that work for the clients you have that use your platform and maybe want to build on top of the functionality or integrate it in a more custom fashion, possibly other developers like, like my organization that might want to leverage some of the services that you have and wrap them inside of an entirely new type of product. Do you have any advice for how to create good developer relationships through the API community? What, what should you do to make developers like working with you uh, versus not? Yeah, uh, we have a developer portal um, that we have a technical writer in-house and uh, we work together to ensure that we have a very interactive and simple interface to understand what APIs are we offering and how exactly does that work. So it's very important to have that communication channel clear and concrete and very simple so that the developers, even though they have a question, they can easily, like if they reach out to us and we give them the exact link or just tell them about what exactly they're looking for, they should be able to understand on their own what, what kind of API calls are they trying to make or the other stuff and all of that. So I think that's very important to have to have a very strong developer portal where you have all your information about the different APIs you're offering, the different callbacks, the different errors and all of that, and make it as more engaging as possible. So we have, you know, our we have a system in which they can directly chat with us on the developers portal, like through comments and all of that, and we, we take that um, you know into consideration and just um, have that as open and as you know simple as we can. As a developer yourself, have you had the experience of trying to work with the API of another product and it wasn't set up as friendly and as sort of customer centric as, as what you've just described there? Yes, I've worked with 
um, I've worked as a developer with companies where they wouldn't have a developer's portal, first of all, so everything would be through emails and they would send their documentation and we'd just go over it. And as you see, currently there are a lot of companies that offer even you know, superior developer portals where you have different examples lined up and you know how that API call is going to work in different formats. It could be JSON, it could be, you know, so those examples were not present at the time when I was a developer and I always had the had the difficulty of just going to and fro through emails and not able to understand what exactly am I supposed to do. There was, I mean, the documentation scene is, uh, I think it's developing rapidly. A lot of bigger companies who have these great API products are making more engaging developer portals. And I think that is the point to start to actually create a conversation with the people who are using your APIs. And I think that should be that should be the minimum start point and it should be there for a company to who has public APIs. Yeah, I, I think I would echo your sentiment that documentation and thinking about the importance of documenting stuff like your own API is a new form of product management in and of itself. So I think a lot of the times we neglect process. And, you know, you've, you've spoken about the challenges that can come with that when an organization is growing, when the right processes weren't sort of set up to begin with. And then we can overlook opportunities to bring process or bring product management to even the back end of the business, like the one that you manage. Because a lot of times when people think of product management, I think the mindset is B2C. We always go B2C in our minds, so we think end customers, end users. And in a business-to-business application, like you have at Vibes, number one, not only are your end users sort of a constellation of different business functions um, within any organization, but then, as, as we spoke about, you also have these developer end users who you know, let's be honest, developers are their own very specific breed of people, and then they need a place to feel connected with the product. So creating value is an opportunity that presents in all kinds of hidden ways, not just in the more traditional business to consumer sort of path, if you will. Absolutely. Let's change gears for a moment. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about experimentation. I know that that you were describing experimentation uh, in the form of being agile, but I'd love to hear more about how you in your own career embraced experimentation on the business side as well. How have you taken that philosophy and applied it to success in some of the organizations that you've worked at? Um, so while I was doing my MBA, I got to work with a lot of healthcare clients. Um, and as we know, healthcare is a very strict, it's a very regulated industry. Um, and then there are things that wouldn't, or there are situations or organizations or entities within the healthcare industry that wouldn't be open to experimenting. But I come from a statistical background, so continuous improvement or Lean Six Sigma and all of that is where you actually try to experiment and see if you can reduce the variation or you can actually reduce the amount of waste that is there in the healthcare um, business industry and all of that. So I was creating this mobile app for Cigna and the idea was to create an app that would cater more towards B2C audience because of late, like before the 
uh, you know, the Affordable Healthcare Act was introduced, Cigna's majority of the business was concentrated into B2B space. And they wanted to go out and cater more towards the, more towards individuals like us and sell their business. So the idea was to experiment. The idea was to experiment, come up with a new business model, come up with a new idea where, you know, they can have much more, or they can create and communicate the value for the consumers. Um, and I guess those kind of, projects where I was allowed to work on the business model side of things and bring and add value with respect to experimentation and creating new business models and creating new strategies to cater to a new audience segment and new market was, was very interesting. And I also worked with American Medical Association in the same period of time and we built an assessment, analytics assessment maturity model that a lot of other healthcare clients um, here in Chicago used. And that was again experimenting, that was finding out what the healthcare organizations like Blue Cross Blue Shield, like Blue Health Intelligence, um, Caden, I think it was Catamaran Health, and there are a few other healthcare organizations that are now adapting analytics to find out uh, the data and to find out what else they can offer from their you know, business side to uh, towards consumers and how effectively they can understand the consumer behavior and offer much better services. I think I got an opportunity to experiment there as well. And with a lot of projects, it's always important to understand what is the pain point you're trying to solve and how you can give out a better solution or a new solution and innovate at the same time. So experimentation uh, in the way you deliver the strategy and where you think about the strategy is, is important. I think I got an opportunity to work with a lot of Chicago-based companies in you know, just changing the way they think and leveraging data to deliver um, the services. I want to come uh, to data in just a moment, but What's interesting about the experimentation mindset, and I think how this ties back to even what we've already been speaking about in terms of where a company is in its life cycle or scale, I think many of our listeners certainly are familiar with the ideas sort of introduced in the lean startup, in the lean movement, uh, familiar with concepts like minimum viable product. One of the things that I find to be an interesting um, moment of inspection is how do you truly experiment with minimum viable products when you're doing it inside of a large established organization, as I think are some of the examples that you have, because, you know, it's one thing for me and a friend who have a, a zany idea for a product that just might work to conduct a little generative research and maybe build a very small functional component of a product to see if there's any interest even at small scale. But when you get into a large organization that already has existing customers, that already has a brand and brand equity, presumably the stakeholders become much more protective about experiments that, that come out of the organization. So how does the process change, in, in your opinion, when you are experimenting intrapreneurially within a large organization? I think what I've seen mostly um, in companies in Chicago, and there's a lot of movement around it, like how do you bring innovation? Uh, how do you bring transformational innovation um, in organizations that have their own core set of offerings, their own set of customers, and it's very difficult to innovate uh, different business models or different strategies. Um, and it's, it's not at all possible when you're executing 
and one set of you know line and then you want to like introduce this another track where you want to innovate at the same time i think what we need is we need more people within larger organizations who would understand the importance of creating a separate core advantage or competitive advantage in today's scenario because what we see we see a lot of disruptions happening everywhere in each and every industry and what we need is we need a slightly different mindset or maybe a growth mindset wherein you maybe you create a separate track of product development within an organization that is solely focused on innovation that's solely focused on creating more mvps and more rapidly you know testing and experimentation and you know collecting feedback and all of that and i've seen that happening in a lot of larger organizations now even at vibes we're working um, mostly on an innovation track right now coming up with an innovation framework i've worked with american medical association which is like a very very um an orthodox not orthodox, but a very traditional organization in terms of how they have done business so far. But they want to they want to seal themselves or protect themselves from the disruptors and have sort of more innovative offerings so that they don't get disrupted anywhere in the near future. And everybody is slowly trying to get that um, that in order to create a very solid competitive advantage in the marketplace, they need to have certain things which are very unique and could be. Could be adding much more value than what their core products or their transactional, you know, uh, business does. So I've worked without some other consulting opportunities where, again, the idea is to innovate. The idea is to, you know, um, have or develop more number of MVPs and just go out in the market and test it out and just execute on it. So I think those two tracks have to be kept separate. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, we need more uh, change man mindset or changed, uh, you know, thinking around how we deliver things and how we need to innovate at a very, very rapid pace. Does that changed mindset have to start at the top, at the executive level, in your opinion? Or can that kind of changed mindset be influenced and informed by the bottom up in terms of, you know, folks who are, are, are actively working on the products, connecting with the opportunities at the, at the base level? I think for larger organizations, I would say it has to be bottom up. It has to be influenced. So if you're working in a smaller group, if you're working on an idea that you are developing for your regular, you know, product launch or whatever deliverable you have, and if you're just trying to iterate on it and create something in a very different fashion, uh, at the same time trying to innovate and just creating that culture from the bottom of saying that we like to innovate, we like to work on different things apart from what we are delivering. So finding out time here and there, going to meetups, working on side projects. At Vibes, we have something called as Days of Impact, where we have two or three days dedicated um, between iterations just to work on side projects or things that would have an impact to our existing projects. Having something similar to that, having hackathons, having you know, a culture where people are interested to work on something totally different from what they're working on a day-to-day -day basis could be helpful in driving um, the or pushing up the value of innovating, the value of doing something apart from the, the transactional stuff. Um, and I think in smaller organizations, it's usually top-down because the leadership is mostly you know in startups and how things work um, they want to just be really aggressive and be more innovative rather than the larger scale organizations so if i'm listening into this conversation right now and i'm working as a developer as a product manager 
as a user experience designer within a larger scale organization where there is a significant amount of, call it bureaucracy, call it layers between me and the, the, the leadership at the highest level. Mm-hmm. And I'm observing we're not innovating. We're not, we're not disrupting ourselves. We're not embracing experimentation mindset. It's not endorsed or um, is celebrated within our culture. What can I do to try to initiate some of that change? I think it's very important to create groups within the organization who share the same kind of thought process as you do, who are more entrepreneurial and who want to do or want to bring or add value to the existing, uh, you know, deliverables by doing something different. So finding those individuals, forming groups, maybe having meetups, maybe having lightning talks within the organization, just making it like how a lot of organizations have book clubs and other things that goes on along with the regular work. Having something which would create a separate track of, you know, innovation or or just thinking about the strategy but from a different perspective, discussing and discussing or creating meetups, going to different other events and conducting events within the organization could be really helpful. And just trying that movement there and, you know, collecting as many folks as uh, one could within the organization. And then again, having these um, maybe a few days here and there just for hackathons or just for working on different business plans or having more or just thinking about different out-of-box ideas for the existing business models that the organization has and just kind of facilitating those discussions and finding a group and just going from there. Right. Yeah, I think that why I bring up the question is because a lot of times what can happen for folks who are working in a larger organization or, or frankly even in a smaller organization is you start to sense that the the culture and the activities that you believe in and that you want are not there. And generally that leads you to a fork in the road where one option is, I guess I'll just keep going along with this and being unhappy and or losing my sharp edge because you just start to become desensitized to it. You, you stop caring in the same way, or, you know, you kind of look at the place and say, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to an organization that's better. And I think there is sometimes a missed opportunity to just simply reach for the brass ring yourself and say, let's do this. And probably there's a lot of reasons why People don't have success in that approach. It has a lot to do with management and how well or not well you're supported by by your your closest sort of supervising team and and the supervisors kind of above that. But I think sometimes it's just simply nobody thinks to take action themselves. Yeah, I know. Um, That happens at a lot of places. Um, I have friends and when we meet and we talk about our work, a lot of my friends would say, you know, I'm not getting that support or I'm not finding like-minded people in my organization. What, what could I do? Um, and my only advice to my friends or people who are going through that kind of a thing and their organizations would be just to constantly learn on the side. And maybe if, you know, it's always important to find advocates within your organization. At least there should be somebody who would understand and listen and find value in what you're offering. But if not, then it would be wise to work on a side project just to cultivate that interest. Never let it go just because your work environment doesn't support it. 
going to meetups, meeting people, just, you know, learning something on the side. There's so many online courses and stuff happening, working on a side project um, could be helpful in that regard. But I mean, if you find an advocate, that would be great because if you find just one person, you start, you know, just interacting, collaborating, working together, and you never know your two member group could actually become four or five, you know, you know, a few weeks. And then you can actually, there are a lot of organizations who do these feedback, um, I mean, uh, reviews, wherein they send you surveys to talk about what's working, what's not working. And it's very important to always open up and say what's not working and why is it not working and what, I mean, just to make a business case, right? What what you were actually proposing could add value to the organization in some way or the other and that the organization should pay attention to it and kind of making it as stronger as the business case as you can. If none of those things are working, then probably look for the right opportunity. <laughs> well, and, and listening to you speak, I think it's excellent advice. And I'm also uh, want to call attention to the fact that you very much practice that which you're recommending here because you and I met at a meetup right here in Chicago for that matter. So you're, you're out there and and you're constantly connecting with the community and and staying sharp and staying fresh. So I think it's, that's all excellent advice. Talk to us about, first of all, what is data driven product management in your words? I'd say product management, uh, especially when you're making a product roadmap, when you're thinking about the vision, about your product strategy and all of that, you interact with a lot of cross-functional teams within the organization, be it sales, be it product support, marketing, um, you have your business development, you have your other operations teams and all of that. And a lot of those discussions around how you create a product roadmap, it's very, very gut-based and very much like, okay, the sales you know, uh, one of the salespeople would say, we have this request coming in from this prospect or a lead and we want this feature to be there. And most of the discussions is never around data. It's never around how you're making those decisions, where are the metrics, what, what exactly are your initiatives, what are your goals and how you're trying to measure them and achieve them. But it's mostly around, this is what the customer wants. We want to make them happy. We want to make you know, uh, this person happy or that client happy and all of that. So the data-driven product management, according to me, is leveraging data, whether it's in the decisioning process, whether it's in what you're trying to achieve with your product roadmap, or whether it is the execution, like how you want to increase the team's productivity and achieving what you want to achieve in the next few iterations or quarters. And using data as much as you can to, again, talk to your stakeholders and kind of bring an, al- an alignment across the various teams in an organization to build what you want to build and just make it much more um, quantitative as it can be. Is there an example that you can share with us about some of the ways that you're leveraging data in your own product management focus? Because I think this idea of quantitative insights, again, there's a lot of conversation about how you can use that to optimize the funnel, for example, mm-hmm. right? And so again, if, if the, the, the vertical that you're owning has more to do with how do we acquire customers, how do we activate them, how do we engage them more fully in the product, it would strike me that given the aspects of the product that you own, there's going to be different metrics that matter. So what are some of the metrics that matter to you and what are some of the ways that you've been able to leverage a data-driven approach to find success, even in this kind of back-end product management that that we speak of? Mm -hmm. 
Um, at Vibes, we have uh, a few metrics. So we have a few SaaS metrics, we have API metrics, and then we have the general business metrics, right? Um, and where we use data the most would be especially making the decisions around how our roadmap should look like and then using those metrics. So when we have a few higher level goals to achieve every quarter or every year, we have a very uh, scientific approach of using the metrics to, to make the outcomes of what we are trying to achieve by designing the goals. Like let's say if I want to um, decrease our customer acquisition cost, what are my goals? And if I have these two top priorities for the next iteration, are they actually meeting the metric that matters the most to me? So out of all the metrics that we have, let's say for API, for SaaS, for, um, for our general business metrics, we try to pick up those three metrics, let's say revenue or churn or you know, uh, the monthly recurring revenue from the business side. Are we trying to meet those three metrics by the decisions that we are making? And if we are trying to do these n number of projects, how are they meeting those metrics or how are they meeting the outcomes that we want to achieve? We want to achieve, let's say, X percentage of monthly MRR increase and how are we going to do that? So when we're trying to come up with a concrete list or a backlog of items that we want to discuss with our stakeholders for drilling them down into quarter level goals, we're using data around the metrics as in uh, this has been the historical data till date with our metrics and we think these projects could add value to those metrics and we just give them like a fictional number let's say this project would increase the this metric by maybe 20% or 10% or 15%. So the approach is very, very much tied with respect to data, with respect to how the data has been historically our metrics what are the decisions that we are trying to make and how that is affecting our top metrics. And then we try to come up with outcomes that we can match later on once the project has been pushed or delivered by, okay, this is how much we move the needle by. So we have like this three-step or layered process of making decisions and making the prioritization of the features that should go out or roll out first. Tell us about your road mapping process currently. Is, is each product manager at Vibes owning their own product roadmap and then at some point those various roadmaps are being kind of synthesized at a, a director level. Do you personally uh, inform the roadmap decisions or do you simply support roadmap decisions that have been articulated by somebody else? At Vives, uh, we all support a single roadmap. So we don't have like a particular roadmap for each of our teams, uh, but we do have certain things or certain projects that our team would like to work on or could be very crucial with respect to what the teams have been working previously and what matters to towards our overall company vision. So what we do as a team is we talk to different individual stakeholder groups. So we have requests coming in from each of our stakeholder groups and we combine them all together into one single unified list. And then we have a prioritization framework with respect to a lot of different um, metrics and different parameters. Let's say revenue, we have financial risk, we have revenue metrics, we have uh, metrics related to how much market excitement or market positioning that that, that feature can offer. And we take the list of requests from all the stakeholder groups. We kind of put numbers for each of those you know, projects or initiatives across the different parameters and then decide 
on the top priorities that we want to work on and then just get feedback from the stakeholder groups and try to sell them on the business or the pitch that this is how we came up with the decision of working on those three or four or five top priorities. So um, the, the roadmap is something that the product team works together on and we do it every quarter because we have quarterly initiatives and quarterly priorities and a quarterly roadmap. And again, we also have a yearly roadmap that we decide uh, in the beginning of the year. Um, that is something that we take a lot of like market excitement, market positioning, customer validation, what customers want and all of that into a roadmap, but that's not very concrete. But the quarterly priorities or the quarterly roadmaps are very, very concrete with respect to a data-driven prioritization framework that we use. So when you get into these quarterly roadmapping sessions, how many people are typically in the room at a given time kind of negotiating this discussion? So when we do it among ourselves, the team, we're just five of us. Uh, when we're doing it across multiple stakeholder groups, we have leads from each group. So it's usually about um, seven or eight stakeholder leads and then it's us so it's 12 or 13 people in a room together but again as I mentioned if we're all just talking about what each individual team wants the discussion can be very chaotic but when we have this framework with numbers and with you know the ratings the project scorings that we think are the most appropriate ones for those projects it becomes much more easier for them to or for us to have stakeholder buy-in. Yeah, what you're describing is a weighted scoring approach to yes. prioritization. One of the uh, activities that I love to do for uh, students that, that take my product management course is whatever we're learning, that's almost the secondary thing that's going on. I just like to put a bunch of people into a group and then uh, have them figure out how they're going to reach consensus. Yeah. Because I think this is this is such an important part of it whether you're in a large organization, whether you're in a smaller organization, is this idea of alignment. How do we align on our goals? How do we align about what's important? I think weighted scoring is a really good approach because it removes the, the sense of arbitrariness that can sometimes emerge from when someone just says, well, that's not a priority. Well, based on what, right? When it feels too rooted in a gut feeling or, or somebody else calling the shots, if you will, weighted scoring can help. But Sometimes even weighting the different items can can lead to a whole bunch of discussions or, or debates. So it's a process to get people rowing in the same direction. Yeah. I think the, the most challenging part is to get an alignment on the framework that the product team is using to make those decisions. And if the stakeholders feel that the, you know, the framework is very, very data-driven, data-oriented, they usually are convinced uh, much faster rather than, okay, why did you pick that up in, in case of the other one? And I think that helps a lot, having the weightings and having the rankings and all of that. We traveled so far along and in the end we came back to process because these <laughs> kinds of frameworks, are they're just processes for how, what is our process for how we make a decision? What is yeah. our process for how we elevate those projects or initiatives that, that we want to focus on over the next quarter? Absolutely. Shilpa, we do a segment on the show called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. And uh, I would love to start by asking you, what advice would you offer to somebody listening in who is looking to become a product manager, whether they're, they're coming completely from a different industry or whether they're coming from a developer role or a marketing role and longing like you to have a little bit more of a holistic involvement in, in, the, in the job? 
Sure. Um, a lot of people ask me whether it's important to have a technical background in becoming a product manager or do you need an MBA to become a product manager? Um, I would say the first and foremost quality, if you get, want to get into product management and want to love uh, what you do as a product manager, you have to be like really, really curious about things, ask a lot of questions, um, understand what exactly, why or how products are built and what's the process of introducing a product and why and how successful products, uh, you know, just become really popular or become or really solve an important problem. So having that curiosity, having that problem solving mindset is very important for anybody who wants to get into product management. Anybody who loves solving problems would be a great, great fit because you can learn technology. You can, you can um, understand how you need to communicate with different teams or different groups within an organization. But what is more important is to have this, uh, this like continuous way of thinking and trying to solve problems and all of that. So I would say uh, understanding how an industry or business works could be helpful. Uh, having a little bit of technical background could be really helpful. And then if you are good in communication, if you're good in understanding, working with teams, that could be super helpful. But, you know, just trying to see how you can leverage your background, whatever it is, to, you know, just make it much more pinpointed towards solving problems and being a problem solver could be helpful in getting into product management of course and then of course you have to be you have to meet the right people you have to apply to the right positions that matches with your background i i think i've seen if you have some domain expertise within an industry it's easier to find a product management job in that industry so maybe you could start from there uh, if you have done a lot of healthcare projects worked on healthcare with worked with healthcare clients uh, before you could probably apply to a healthcare product manager role that would be easier to get and get and and I think yeah just understanding more about the business about consumers and yeah just having the curiosity to learn I guess. Yeah I, I couldn't agree with you more I, I say often the two most dangerous words when used together are I and no and I think especially as product managers the minute that we start to occupy I know space we forget to ask the right kinds of questions. We forget to consider why is this happening and all of the experimentation, all of that validated learning process dissolves before our eyes because it's predicated on asking why and making a, an assumption or a hypothesis and, and then trying to find out the answer. Yeah. So I agree. And, and I think your advice about, I would almost frame it as daisy chaining. So saying, okay, so you don't have the product manager title on your resume and you know you want to get into product management. You've, you've worked as a project manager for this healthcare company. Go leverage what you know about healthcare and your passion for, for wanting to be involved in product as a starting point, even if that's not the ultimate place that you want to be as a product manager. But once you start getting more experience as a product manager, it's easy to then kind of do a, a jump into a different vertical because what you understand is the processes and the frameworks for product management and learning the industry becomes the new thing that you'll be doing. Totally. What about hard lessons learned on the job speaking from your own experience or speaking from ways in which you've seen folks struggle because sometimes we make it sound easy. I think you make it sound very easy, but you know, you have tremendous credentials behind you. What 
about product management is harder than it seems? It's working with a lot of teams, working on a lot of projects at the same time. So, you know, people say, oh, women are good multitaskers, they can do a lot of things at the same time. And it always takes your focus away from something that you're working on just because you have to be on a different project or, a di or you have to work on a different, you know, deliverable or goal that is required for your, you know, role or responsibility. And I guess the challenging part is to balance everything. And the challenging part is saying no to a lot of things, a lot of distractions and just focusing on what exactly needs to be delivered at that point of time. And having this, um, again, the lean thinking in your head that I would be working on stuff, but let me attack the first problem and attack the important problem first and just go on from there. And creating that sense of order in your head while you're a product manager is, is very important because what product managers do, they it's, it's anywhere from anywhere between strategic and tactical, right? So you work on strategy and the next moment you have to answer questions from your team on a certain feature that they don't know how to deliver. And then there is product support. You have, you know, you have requests coming in from your customers, some production issues, bugs and all of that. So I think it's very important to have a nice balance between all of these and then kind of have an order in your head on what you're working and be focused in, in, in any given point of time and just get it done and be, you know, just be present in the moment and just attack everything. That's the most challenging part to maintain a balance um, and just get your work done in the regular way. Given that you have participated in so many different types of roles, as we spoke about earlier, but ultimately sort of settled on product as being the favorite, <laughs> what can you say about why you love the job? I love because I love it because I work. I get to work with so many different disciplines and teams. So I have a marketing background, so I get to work with marketing and sales. I get to know the business, I get to understand the strategy and how our product uh, can make a very big difference to the entire corporate strategy of the organization. So I get to work with executives, the leadership teams. Um, I get to work with the support guys, with the developers. I was a developer myself. So sometimes just seeing the code and you know, discussing about the technical architecture actually tickles my brain because, you know, I come from this engineering background and that, of course, it's always great to know and learn new concepts and see how code is being written and just kind of uh, involve, get involved with those guys. And the fact that I get to work with all of these teams in one single day is absolutely fascinating to me because overall, if you want to see, uh, I just, I'm just working with, I'm working for the entire business I have this business mindset, right? I'm trying to see if I'm solving this problem, how it's affecting the business. At the same time, I'm evaluating the technical risks. So it's a very holistic role, which I, I love. Yeah. Is it tempting at all? Like you talk about, you know, you see the code or you're, you're having a conversation about information architecture. Is it tempting at all to, to go back into domain specializing or domain expertise? Because the trade-off, you know, you describe that I get to touch a bunch of things. And I would definitely echo that sentiment from myself. I love that my job lets me participate across a number of different centers of gravity. But sometimes, you know, if I'm doing some wireframing or if I'm, you know, more deeply involved in, say, customer research, I'm like, oh, this is so fun. Why do I have to leave this? Yeah. Do you ever feel that way? That's the hardest part. Yeah, I do. I do. I work on a couple of side projects. Uh, I'm learning some new technologies. So, of course, um, 
I sometimes I think I wish I wish I could be the developer on this particular piece of functionality, you know. Uh, but then again, the trade-off is I always wanted to be on the business side and contribute more to the strategy and, and growth of an organization. So I will always feel that fine, that's good, but then maybe sometime later or but not now. Maybe I want to like learn more about the industry, more about the organization and how it functions, how it operates and all of that. So yeah, it goes back to what you said, focusing on the right things in the right order. <laughs> yeah. What uh, Do you have any recommended resources uh, for our listeners, books, blogs, podcasts, other, that uh, that you think would be worthwhile to check out uh, across any number of topics, really? Absolutely. Um, I really, for product management, um, I, I go to media and look for product management articles, but then there are so many. So you have to actually put filters and find out the actual focus where you want to, like what you want to learn more about, which aspect of product management you want to learn more about. So I think Medium is a great resource for anybody who wants to read anything from technology to startups to product management to um, to machine learning, uh, almost everything. Um, then there are podcasts like 100PM, and I think there's one more which is TIPM, which I usually listen on. I don't, I forgot the... This is product management. This is product management. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think... Those two are great pod, uh, podcasts, and I read a lot of books, um, so I, I would recommend a lot of great product management books. You can go on Amazon, you can find books like Hooked or Lean Startup Thinking, um, and forgetting a few other names, but mostly on the Lean Startup, um, those books could be recommended for you know agile thinking of product management and all of that. And then Mind the Product, I really find their, um, their site very useful. I'm also on their Slack channel, so... They keep on posting stuff, PM resources, a lot of discussions happening around, um, you know, small specific topics around product management. Um, and I think I find that as a, as a very useful resource. Excellent. All of that is great. And absolutely, Mind the Product is a, an excellent organization. Lots of local meetups. Do they do have local meetups for Mind the Product here in, uh, in Chicago? Yes, they had one, the Product Tank meetup recently, like a few weeks back um, at yellow, which was about MVPs. So that's great. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, last question before we wrap. Is there a professional or personal life philosophy that you subscribe to that describes your approach to being in the world? This is something that my mom tells me that nothing is small. Like don't always, like, don't ever feel that you're doing something which is irrelevant to why you're doing it. So my mantra in life is to continuously just go out, meet people, learn, and then work on my strengths, I can make it much more stronger and also work on weaknesses. But never ever feel that anything that I'm doing is small or you know, it doesn't matter, doesn't add value. Everything has a value attached to it. And always just continuously seek what you want to learn and learn, keep learning. That's a, a beautiful sentiment, and uh, I think you're absolutely living into it. Thank you so much, Shilpa Mohanty, for being part of our show. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Suzanne. Thank you for listening to 100PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests 
week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.